We will be back in John 17. And we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26 tonight. And we're finishing the high priestly prayer. Uh, let me say a couple things about this. There's a great quote I found from F.B. Meyer this week talking about the significance of what Jesus is going to say here. He says, as the weight of the jeweled breastplate lay heavy on the heart of the high priest of old, so does it press on him. The burden of Jesus' soul for his future children thrust his loving heart passionately upward. You also may recall this is the last section of what Jesus has to say before he moves into the final hours of his life, so it is going to be of particular relevance there. And it can really be broken apart into three pieces. Uh, there's a prayer for his church, 20 through 23, and that's where we'll spend most of our time. There's the heavenly prayer for his church, verse 24, and then finally the eternal vow to his church in verses 25 and 26. And I will only have two points tonight, and for those who are taking notes and keeping score at home, the first one is much longer than the second one. Let's go ahead and jump in right here in verse 20. It says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is praying for his disciples that are there with him in the room. But he's also praying for all disciples that would come after him. So he was praying for us as well. And look what he prays. He says, <coughs> that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now pay careful attention to that. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So first point tonight, Call it Jesus' prayer request number one. Jesus is praying for a Trinitarian-like unity among his disciples so that the world would believe that he was sent from God. Now, Jesus is explicitly clear about the nature of this unity. He talks about it three different times. Anytime you see it repeated like that, it's there for emphasis. Verse 21, 22, and 23. He talks about them being unified like the members of the Trinity are unified. But what's interesting about this as well is that unity does not presuppose uniformity. You see that within the members of the Trinity. One in essence, but three in persons, each a unique member of the Trinity with his own attributes, so on and so forth. And he's praying the same kind of unity for all believers that would follow his gospel. This is summed up a lot of times in the old statement that says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. This type of unity without uniformity is what we need to have as a church, and it's what Jesus wants for the capital C church throughout Christian history. Another way to think of it, we are Christian disciples, we are not Christian clones. Each of us has our own unique gifts and talents and story and so on. And you see this picked up in what Paul says when he talks about gifting. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, it's also a historically connected unity as well. John Stott pointed this out, talking about the connection with the apostolic teaching. He said, it is first and foremost a prayer that there may be a historical continuity between the church of the first century and the church of any subsequent century. That the church's faith would not change what, what remain recognizably the same. That the church of every age would merit the title of apostolic because it is loyal to the teaching of the apostles. So this type of close-knit, Trinitarian-like, but not clone unity is very important to the Lord. And he also talks about exactly why at the end of this section. He says that they may be one, just as you and I, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then two purpose clauses here, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's an authentication element that happens here externally by Christians being unified. And then, same verse, goes on further, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It's also some interesting uh, exegesis here. The Greek that is translated as even as means just as or to the same degree that. So Jesus is telling his disciples that God loves those who belong to him to the same degree and in the same way that he loves Christ. Think about that. The amazing, mind-blowing nature of that, that we are loved in the way that Jesus was loved. And we are to show forth a unique, spirit-wrought type of unity for the benefit of the world. That we proclaim the further veracity of the gospel through our unity with one another. Which also means that the converse is true when we don't. Thomas Manton said this, that divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. And you think about that. You think about some of the stories that you know, perhaps some of the stories that you've experienced where Christians get into some kind of fight with one another, churches get divided, there's some kind of rupture within their community. Anybody that has an axe to grind with Christianity seems to just come out of the woodwork at that exact moment, don't they? seem to wag their finger and say, I knew it. Those Christians, again, just can't get along. That's why I'm not one of them. Now, of course, there's a scoffing within their heart with that, but it does underscore the importance of our witness that we bear or have diminished by our unity or disunity that we experience. One writer said it like this, that there's a, a picture of God at each church. I'm speaking figuratively here, of course. Say so we don't have any photographs of Jesus, but the church is the photograph. The church is the picture of his love and his mercy. And the picture frame around the church has a sign above it that says, Come here and see what God is like. Another writer says it like this. The effectiveness of the church's evangelism is devastated 
by dissension and disputes among its members. So this is important. It's important not just for our experience as church members, but it's important for our witness as church members, both in the little C and capital C church. So I think as we hear this tonight, we hear the, the premium that Jesus places, uh, the, the importance that he puts upon unity to the degree that this is one of the key things he's praying for as he comes onto the home stretch of his life. I think we have to be asking, okay, if it's this important, how do we get this? How do we keep this? How do we cultivate this together? Now, of course, there's many things we could say, but I want to give us just four things that we need to stay devoted to that will help us in this way. The first one is that we remain devoted to Jesus and the gospel. D.A. Carson said this. He said, unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but rather by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. That is really good counsel. Because I have been in some environments and in some larger gatherings where you just knew there's so much theological disagreement here, so much debate, so many different things going on here, that it was almost a race to the bottom to say doctrine doesn't really matter, doctrine doesn't matter, and that refrain keeps going, when I think it would have been better to say, listen, doctrine does matter. We all have different doctrine, but guess what matters most? Jesus in the gospel. So we are going to rise above our differences and focus on that which is the most important. Is that not what Paul taught us to do in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the gospel being of first importance? It's not that the other things aren't important. It's just that the gospel is the most important. And so that's why here at this church... This will be the case as long as I'm the pastor. This will be the case long after I'm gone, I hope. We focus on Jesus and the gospel, in the preaching, in the community groups, in the type of counseling, in all of the kids' ministry. Everywhere we turn, we're talking about Jesus and the gospel. Not because the other things aren't important, but because that is the most important. And if you want to bring people together unify them around the greatest central truth, the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we stay devoted to that, we can weather all kinds of storms. But if you lose that, you might as well go ahead and sink the ship. Because if you've lost the gospel, then what is it that we're doing as a church? But by God's grace, we have not lost the gospel. We have it. We continue to preach it, and we will continue to preach it. So that's number one. You want to have this kind of unity? Stay devoted to Jesus and the gospel. Second thing, stay devoted to the Bible. In some ways, it's kind of like, well, we just said that in verse 1, but I think it's distinct enough to, to talk about it again here. And I think this is also reflected in the type of ministry that we do here. Again, this would be my hope if someday the Lord leads me away from here. We preach through the Bible doesn't have to necessarily always be through books of the Bible. There's different ways to do this. But Refuge needs to always be the kind of church that is focused on the text of Scripture. Because at the end of the day, that's what God has given us. 
He has revealed himself to us in the unchanging word of God. It's also interesting here textually that when Jesus uses the word glory in verse 22, he's using it in the sense of revelation. Now, the disciples experienced that revelation by walking and talking and doing ministry with Jesus. But we receive that revelation today, how? Through the scriptures. So it's got to always go back to the Bible. You also think about kind of the high watermark of the church, Acts chapter 2, if you want to look at it that way, the golden age, as some have called it. When they were seeing all the amazing things happen, what were they doing first? Verse 42 tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which for us translates to the Bible, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and had all things in common. So at the end of the day, we need to always be asking ourselves, what does the Bible say, and what does God want me to do in response? How does this exalt Christ through this passage? How can we take this truth and press it down into our lives for the good of ourselves and for those around us? So it starts with a devotion to Jesus and the gospel. It is sustained by a devotion to the Bible. Third, we also need to remain devoted to the mission. Many would call this the Great Commission. That's why the mission statement of our church is as close to the Great Commission as we can get without just restating it. To make disciples who make disciples for the glory of God and the good of the world. That's the mission that we're on. So everything we're seeking to do here, in its own way, comes back to discipleship, to disciple-making, to seeing people meet Jesus and grow in Jesus. And let me tell you something, having a sense of mission that is clear, it's really important. Because in some of those same gatherings that I talked about before, this theological race to the bottom, one of the things that always comes up with that is which mission are we going to be about? And there's always a crew that's fighting for their thing. For some people, they're fighting only for justice to the exclusion of everything else. Other people, they're fighting only for conversions and say nothing about justice. And the answer is, it's, it's all those things, but it's really one thing. It is the mission of disciple-making. And from that flows all these other things. We teach because we want to make disciples. We care about justice issues because it reflects the glory of God on the mission that he's on. We want to see converts because of the mission that he's given us. Now, does that flesh itself out in 10,000 ways? Of course it does. But you got to keep the main thing the main thing. The mission that Jesus has given us, revealed to us in the Bible, for the exaltation of Christ himself. Now, one final thing that I think will help us here as well, practically, is to stay devoted to one another. Now, the one another passages come to mind here. And as you know, the Bible is filled with them. But let me give you just a few here. Galatians 6, 1, bear one another's burdens. Romans 15, 14, instruct one another. Ephesians 4, 2, forgive one another. James 5, 16, pray for one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, encourage one another. Hebrews 10, 24, provoke one another not to anger, but to love and to good works. Another exegetical point that's interesting here too, in verse 23, 
when he talks about striving for perfection, the idea there doesn't mean completely spotless. We get that idea of holiness elsewhere. But it's the idea of pursuing the highest degree of unity. So that means that a church, when we're doing it right, we're trying, never says, oh, we're unified enough. But always says, how much more can we push closely to Jesus? How much more can we push closely to one another? How much more can we open the door so that others would come in? It's seeking this ongoing sense of one another-ness that the New Testament bears out. Chasing that ever-elusive but always inviting prize. This is what the Lord wants. Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks talked about this too. He said, discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry lambs is no wonder, but for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. Spoken like a true Puritan. But what that means for us practically is that when we talk about refuge being a safe place, Refuge being a place of gospel doctrine and gospel culture, it's really important. You know, part of the reason why we chose the name that we did eight years ago when we were coming here to do this is because we wanted to be a place where people, no matter what had happened to them along their spiritual journey, could come here and find rest and healing, kind of get put back together, whatever that means for them. And that we would be a place of green pastures and still waters where we could walk together with the Lord. And by and large, the Lord has been so kind to us in that regard. I mean, it, it, this has never been a perfect church. It's not a perfect church now. But even at its worst, there's never been this huge acrimonious rupture of any kind. Sure, there's been plenty of things people have disagreed with and moved on and so on and so forth, but in the, the, the way that this often happens in churches, even at its worst, the Lord still allowed this to be a safe place here. Friends, that's a huge deal. Huge deal. Because there are so many churches that, that I'm aware of, particularly with one of our supporter networks on the West Coast, that did not survive the COVID season and went out in an absolute fireball. That was not refuge's case, and we're thankful for that. The Lord has been kind to us in this way. But let's look forward and think about this. So he has preserved us, and we have this kind of place. This is the kind of thing that you can't just set on autopilot. You have to continue to cultivate you have to continue to press into one another appropriately and come along to encourage. Come, on, come along to stand alongside. Come along to put an arm around to say, the Lord is with you. I'm with you too. To pray for one another. To seek the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for. And let me give you some good news. He's doing it and he will continue to do it. The, the onus of responsibility here does not let rest fully on us. We need to open ourselves and be available and allow him to work through us. 
and he will do it. We know this is in his heart. This is exactly what he's praying for. So as we seek to guard and cultivate and encourage this type of unity, we know that the Lord is with us and for us and will help us in this way. So let me stop and ask just a question or two here with all that we've talked about. We know the type of unity that it is. It's this Trinitarian type, very close unity, focused on Jesus, sustained by teaching of the Bible, thinking through this idea of being staying on mission and devoted to one another, spirit-wrought, spirit-led. What is it that the Lord might be saying to you about your involvement in this? Is there somebody that's on your heart that you need to come alongside and say, hey, I heard you say something about this in community group a couple weeks ago. Just want to let you know I'm praying for you. How's that going? Is it maybe you need to come alongside somebody and say, hey, you know what? There's this little thing between us. I didn't even think about it, but I just want you to know I am sorry for my part in that, so on and so forth. may not have anything like that. But if there is something like that, let's let this passage serve us and help us and draw us together for the glory of God, the good of this church, and the good of the watching world. We want to be the kind of church that Jesus is praying for here. So that's verse, the first, two, first three verses. There we go. Let's turn our attention to the second set here. Pick it up, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's a lot to digest. Let me try to make it real simple. The second prayer request that Jesus has here is that his disciples would be with him where he is, heaven, and to see his glory. Now, there in verse 24, there's an interesting Greek word that he uses here, to see his glory. That means to observe with sustained attention. It includes the idea of entering into and experiencing something. To see it, to know it, and to keep knowing it. And in some ways, that, that, that's kind of the whole purpose of salvation, that we get to know God, we go deeper in our knowledge with Him, and then it continues forever. One way to think about it is the type of union and fellowship we experience with Christ now is only a shadow of what we'll experience forever. John Calvin described it like this. He said, at that time they saw Jesus' glory, as someone shut up in the dark area, sees a feeble and glimmering light through the small cracks. But Jesus now wants them to go on and to enjoy the full brightness of heaven. Apostle John picks this up in his own writings when he says this. He says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. And we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. 
So let's stop and think about that. That there is a day coming. There's a place where there will be no more taint and cloud of sin, no more sorrow to dim our eyes, no more distraction to pull away our gaze and our focus, no more worry to weigh us down, no more heartbreak or childhood drama to cause us to question things that we know are true. No more relational angst that could cloud our thinking toward God. But a day and a place where every day, all day, forever, we will bask in the glory of Jesus. We almost can't even imagine it, can we? Because we've never known anything other than a glimpse. Anything other than this foretaste. But friends, even that is enough to show us that there's something out beyond the edges. To show us that there's really something and someone to look forward to. And part of the good news here is that it isn't just for us. We want other people to see it too, to go with us, to experience it with us. Listen to this quote. It says this, The church can be a taste of heaven. When people with different preferences, hobbies, jobs, genders, backgrounds, skin colors, accents, and tastes love one another with a love surpassing all human love, they open a window to heaven. And people begin to feel the breeze from a far-off country in their souls, and it awakens a long-dormant hope. They want to go to that place, and they want to be with those people who can see and feel something different, something beyond, something more. Doesn't that put a longing in your heart tonight? Doesn't that put a longing in your heart to bring along some of those family members that aren't yet in the gospel family. To pray for some of those neighbors that you know they don't know Jesus. Because we want them to experience the foretaste that we have now and the ultimacy that we will have in the future. Our unity as Christians is a part of that. It's not the final vote. But it's a part of it. So when Jesus talks about this and he prays about this and he exhorts us toward it through this proclamation, we need to hear it and give it the appropriate weight that he does. We need to allow this to draw us into his presence and say, Lord, we want this, but we don't want to just gin it up from a human standpoint. We want to see what only God can do in our midst. We want to experience a type of unity that only God can make happen. We want to focus on Jesus in such a way that only God could be the explanation. We want to teach and equip and encourage in such a way that fosters what this passage is talking about. And we want to see men, and women, and boys and girls 
meet Jesus and be changed in the way that we have so that they can feel that breeze from a far-off country and have their souls awakened. So here's how I want to close this message tonight. I want to close this message with an encouragement for us to pray about this. Just get still there and bow your head and let's just lean in to the prayer of Jesus. Oh Lord, we feel this prayer. We praise you for the unity that we have, but we want even more. We want to become more focused on Jesus and the gospel. We want to be more committed to the mission of disciple making. We want to care about the things you care about. Lord, we want to see more men and women and boys and girls that don't yet know you meet you in the next year. Lord, we want to pray and ask that you would grow our church from within and beyond. That real, supernatural, spiritual growth would happen in each of our lives. And that we would become even more knit together as a result. Lord, I pray for the humility that it takes to walk this path. In the same way that you instructed Paul to instruct the Philippian church, Lord, we pray that we would do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than ourselves. Lord, as a church, help us to look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others, both within and beyond. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to gather together tonight around your word. And we pray that you would use it mightily in our lives. In the discussions this week in community group. In the conversations over coffee and around dinner tables. That you would do all this for the sake of your name. And that we would be changed in response. Jesus' mighty name.